When a footballer gets a second caution or warning, that's when the yellow card becomes a red card and the offending player must leave the field of play. Today we come to the second warning, the second of five specific warnings which form the backbone to the letter to the Hebrews, as the writer, by the Spirit of God, repeatedly warns these early Jewish Christians not to turn their back on the place that was theirs among the local Christian testimonies known throughout the New Testament as churches of God. Whatever they did, they could never lose their salvation. But if they went back to practising Judaism, they would, of course, lose out on the privileges which their place of Christian service among the New Testament churches had brought them. The writer of this Bible letter to the Hebrews is at great pains to show them that this is a very serious step, and should they decide to take it, they would lose out on a very great deal, not to mention incurring God's displeasure. With the second warning, which we'll deal with today, the same thing happens as with the first. There's a build-up to it. In this case, the build-up, contained in chapter 2 of the letter, concerns the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, became like us, and became like us both to save us and also to qualify as our priest, being the one who represents us to God. The Lord became man not only to save those who believe, but also so that believers could have a settled lifestyle in God's house. The argument of Hebrews chapter 1 has shown Jesus to be greater than any angel, and now the argument at the beginning of chapter 3 proves him to be greater than Moses. It goes without saying that the nation to which these Hebrews belonged by birth held Moses in their very highest esteem. But despite that, in their history, they, or strictly speaking their forefathers, had both doubted God's word through Moses and also gone on to put it to the test. The appeal now being made to them was, Jesus is far greater than Moses, so surely they wouldn't go one worse than their fathers and doubt God's word through him. Moses had led their forefathers out of Egypt, and then had to put up with their grumblings and murmurings in the desert. However, it was Joshua, his successor, who'd brought them into the promised land. There, even the second generation of Israelites failed to enter into settled enjoyment of all God had provided. That was sad news for them. But the good news for us today is that an opportunity still exists of enjoying a spiritually settled lifestyle in the place which God's will appoints. And appreciating its glorious privileges is the key to that. These Hebrews had lost sight of the glories of God's spiritual house on earth, and that's what was making them restless. It's the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3 which introduces us to the subject of God's house on earth, the tabernacle of Moses' day and its successors. But it also links that with the service of a people enjoying God's rest. We might well ask, what is the rest of God that's referred to in the Bible? and here in particular. It's important at this point to make the connection between God's rest and God's people. Notice how Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And it's at this point that the writer to the Hebrews moves on from the experience of Israel, God's Old Testament people, 
to the Holy Spirit's application of this same truth to a people today who, as God's New Testament people, share in the privileges of the spiritual house and kingdom of God too. The early verses of chapter 4 of Hebrews says, Since a promise remains of entering God's rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Rest here is really resting down in the sense of a a settled remaining, which at once gives it a relevance in view of the many different potential homes for a Christian service today. And considering how many Christians today move from group to group and from church to church, this warning carries a fresh challenge, reminding us that God's purpose is for us to be really settled in Christian life and service, in the place where he himself has settled down, as shown by his word. The second major warning in Hebrews, occupying most of chapters 3 and 4, is against just such a failure to enter into God's rest, where we've seen entering in means recognising and progressively enjoying the spiritually settled lifestyle of the people of God in our day too. In other words, we are warned against failing to enter into God's rest of settled and undistracted service in God's own appointed place. For God's Old Testament people, Israel, that place for them was in the promised land. But they failed even to take possession of large areas of the land that was promised to them. That only reflected their unsettled spiritual experience. But then came a fresh appeal in Psalm 95, appealing for a change for the better. Today, God pleaded, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. The appeal found a response through King David when he brought up the Ark of God to Jerusalem, its ultimate resting place, now that the nation was settled in the land. And for a short while, then they fulfilled God's purpose for a people at rest in his purposes. But soon the same old problem plagued them, the problem being that of the creeping collective spiritual disease of hardness of heart. In other words, an increasing insensitivity to the word and will of God, coupled with a weakening of their own devotion. This in turn was diagnosed as resulting from their unbelief and disobedience. What this second warning highlights is this, that God really looks for his people to be continually entering into the glories of his house, over which Jesus Christ is Son. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 say, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Appreciating the glories of God's house while enjoying and participating in its privileges is the only way to spiritually settled lifestyle in God's earthly house. Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. We've no need to hold fast to our salvation, as we made clear last time, but on at least three occasions in this short section of God's word, there's mention of holding fast in connection with a place in God's house. Hold fast to what? To our confidence and to our hope. 
But what confidence is this? And what hope is this? We can only be sure of the answers if we read them out of the surrounding context of this Hebrews letter. So come with me to a confidence that's mentioned later in chapter 10, where verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Notice the confidence mentioned there is in relation to a people. In fact, a worshipping people entering into the holy place in heaven above while worshipping God through service that's associated with God's house on earth. We'll check that out further in this series, but for the moment we need to explore what the hope is that those who remain in God's house are warned to hold fast to. That brings us to chapter 6, and once again it's verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Obviously, there's a common theme there which confirms we're on the right track by letting the same words as defined later in the letter clarify what Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 is really saying. This gives us more than a glimpse of where this series is heading. We're on to something big here. Those Christians who are associated with God's house on earth can at times, in their service, actually draw near collectively and can, in a spiritual sense, access the inner sanctuary of the heavenly temple where God himself is seated and which provided the pattern for the tabernacle Moses built on this earth long ago. Those Hebrews, with their Jewish background, knew all about that former physical house for God on earth. The writer appeals to them not to be drawn back to the glory of those bygone days, for theirs was now a far greater privilege in terms of the spiritual house comprised of the New Testament churches of God. A far greater privilege for sure, because of the spiritual linkage with the heavenly reality itself. The tabernacle in the desert, etc., had only been mere copies of the same reality in heaven. If these Hebrews could only grasp this, they wouldn't consider leaving and returning to Judaism. Judaism had only ever been connected with copies, but their current service involved entering into the reality itself in heaven. To be settled and undistracted in the place of God's will for them as Christians depended upon them getting hold of this glorious truth disclosed here. The picture language of the Old Testament anticipated the Lord Jesus dying and in resurrection entering into the true holy place in heaven. And when the high priest of Israel went through the tabernacle veil on the Day of Atonement, he did so with two handfuls of incense, the Bible's symbol of prayer. That illustrates what we find at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, where God's people are now invited to draw near in prayer. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Referring back to that solemn day of atonement, two handfuls of incense, which David and his psalms linked with prayer, were taken right into the holiest of all. And the high priest then was acting for the whole people of God, not just on behalf of any individual. That's consistent with the disclosure made here in Hebrews. Individual exercise in prayer is a precious privilege. But the indication here is that the people of God, when together in prayer, in some sense, 
penetrate further into God's presence.